You can take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. This morning we'll be continuing our study of the most debated section in the Bible. Last week we worked through just a few verses, Romans 9, verses 6 through 9. This morning we'll pick up right where we left off. But let's make sure we remember a few big things first. Remember, Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel. Israel in the past, Israel in the present, Israel in the future. And the big problem in Paul's day that sort of cast a shadow over everything in these chapters is very simple to understand, but it was also an incredibly sad thing for Paul to deal with. The problem is that the vast majority of Paul's fellow Jews have completely rejected their own Messiah, the promised king, Jesus of Nazareth. So instead of sharing in God's promised blessings, they are under God's curse for rejecting God's son. And this tears Paul up every time that he thinks about it, and he thinks about it a lot. That's one of the things you see in this section. But this section is about far more than Paul's sorrow over what he sees. Paul knows that this sad story of Israel also raises serious questions about God and about the faithfulness of God to his promises. After all that God had promised in the Old Testament, how is it even possible that the vast majority of Jesus' own people, Paul's own people, could be cut off from the promised blessings? Isn't that a sign that God's promises have failed. We could certainly imagine how people could see it that way, and this is what leads into the main claim of this entire section. Romans 9, verse 6. You can look at it, where Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the main claim, but what's the proof of that? Look at what Paul says. Next verse, or next section. It's because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, what does that mean? What Paul's saying is that it is possible for a person to be from Israel, but still not belong to Israel, the one that's going to get God's promises. What he's getting at by this is, is that simply being an ethnic Israelite does not guarantee someone God's blessings. God never guaranteed that. In fact, and this is, the, this is the key point, if you think that God guaranteed all of his blessings to every ethnic Jew, then when you look around and see a bunch of Jews not following Jesus, what would you have to conclude? God has failed to keep his promises. But it is not as though the word of God has failed because God never guaranteed his covenant blessings to every physical ethnic Israelite. Now, it's one thing for Paul to simply claim that, but the question is, does the Old Testament itself actually teach that? Okay. And this is what leads Paul into story time. Right? He wants to tell Old Testament stories to try to help you see this in the text. Okay, So starting in verse 6 again, for, for a little bit here, this is going to be my own translation of this. Verse, verse 6 again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor is it that all the children of Abraham are his seed. But in Isaac, 
your seed will be called. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At the appointed time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. That is the first story that Paul tells. We looked at this last week. What story is it? This is the story, we say, of Isaac, right? And yes, that's true, but that is only part of the answer. The story Paul is telling is just as much a story about Abraham's other son as well. His firstborn son named Ishmael. And what is Paul's point? What's the point again? God never guaranteed his covenant blessings to every physical descendant of Abraham. What's his proof? It's right there in the first two sons of Abraham. Only the promised seed would get the promised blessings. The only son who would get God's blessings was the son that God would bring about in his own timing by his own power. That is like exhibit A from the Old Testament. Story number one, the story of Isaac and Ishmael. It provides strong evidence for what Paul's saying, but here's the thing. What objection would everybody bring up to this? What do you think? Do you, what do you th- suppose someone would throw back at Paul when he points at Isaac and Ishmael? And he would say, you know, God's blessings come through Isaac, not Ishmael. God never guaranteed he'd bless every physical son of Abraham. What would somebody say? Someone would say, well, sure, Paul, not every single son of Abraham gets the blessings. I get that. We all know about Ishmael. But come on, Paul. Ishmael was obviously an illegitimate son. Right? Of course he wasn't going to get the blessings that Isaac got. And you can easily imagine that sort of objection. After all, Ishmael and Isaac didn't even share the same mom. Only Isaac came from Sarah. So what does Paul do? He takes you down another generation in the story, to story number two, beginning in verse 10, our text for today. Look at verse 10. And not only so, like not only that story, but also Rebecca. Now, who is that? Who is Rebecca? Okay. This is the daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah. Okay? This is the wife of the promised son, Isaac. Okay? This is story number two. Paul wants to take it down another generation to the grandsons of Abraham. Now, let's read straight through from verses 10 through 12. Okay? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, this time about her children, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, what's your first observation about those verses? Mine is, that's a long sentence. That is a really long sentence. And that is a very complicated sentence, grammatically. I counted it up in the ESV. Five commas, a quotation, and a whole section in the middle separated by two big dashes, right? That's one sentence, okay? And I'm pointing that out because it's, it's very easy to miss the, like, just the main thing he's trying to say in that text because of how much stuff he adds in the middle. If you want to know the main thing he's saying, you just got to go from the very beginning to the very end and skip all the stuff in the middle for a minute. Here's what I mean. Look at the text again. Verse 10, and not only so, but also Rebecca, and then skip all the way to the end, 
was told the older will serve the younger. Okay. That's the main story right there. Not only does the story of Isaac and Ishmael prove what I'm saying, but also Rebecca was told the older son will serve the younger son. Okay. You see, Paul first told the story of the sons of Abraham, and now he tells the story of the grandsons of Abraham. In the first story, God told Abraham, in Isaac your seed will be called. And in the second story, God told Rebekah, the older son will serve the younger son. Okay. Now the question for us now is, what's all the stuff in the middle? If the, if the main thing is just the first phrase and the last phrase, what's all the middle stuff? Okay. That's all the stuff that's different between the two stories. Okay. You see, someone could easily object to Paul's first story. Paul, Isaac and Ishmael were different. They were born in different ways, at different times, to different moms. And to add to that, Ishmael was apparently pretty mean to little Isaac. <clears throat> okay? None of that stuff is true of the second story. You can't say any of that about Abraham's grandsons. I mean, look at the text in verse 11 again. Look at what he says. Though these guys, these sons, were not even born yet, and they hadn't done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of their works, but because of the God who calls, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. This is a story of Isaac's two sons, twin boys, conceived at the very same time and carried in the very same womb. Paul is telling the story of Jacob and Esau. And what is he so obviously highlighting? You can't point to their goodness or badness to their works or to their moms or to anything about them to explain why God said what he did to Rebecca or why he made the choice that he did. It wasn't due to any of those things. It was simply so that God's purpose could stand. And it was simply because of God, the God who calls that God said this to Rebecca. The older will serve the younger. This is Paul's definitive proof that God never guaranteed the blessings to every physical descendant of Abraham. The story of Isaac and Ishmael already gave evidence of that, but after the story of Jacob and Esau, it's like case closed on that point. Now that's the big takeaway in context, but this story also adds something new and it raises a bunch of questions. Okay? On the one hand, it shows us again that ethnicity or physical connection to somebody who's faithful is not and has never been enough. Ethnicity is neither why some individuals get God's blessings or why others don't. Being physically connected to a good man or a good mom has never been enough. But this story of Jacob and Esau adds more than just that. What else could we say about the basis for getting God's blessing? First, God doesn't choose to bless on the basis of our works. I don't know how much more clearly Paul could have said this, 
God's commitment to bless Jacob was made before he was ever born. Before these kids had done anything good or bad. And then he adds for extra clarity, it was not because of works that God did this. God didn't and he doesn't choose to bless on the basis of our works. You don't earn anything with God. God is never in the position of having to repay somebody for what they've earned. Never. Second, God doesn't choose to bless based on our expectations. Now, we might miss this because we're distant from this ancient culture, but it's very clear in the Old Testament era that the firstborn son was the one that everybody agreed was supposed to be the heir. The firstborn. But time and time again in the Old Testament, and especially in the story of Jacob and Esau, we find that God's decision to bless is not based on cultural norms. And it often does not fit what we want or expect. This is one of the key takeaways from God's word to Rebekah when God says the older son will serve the younger son. One of the things we've got to realize is that God does not act based on how we think he should act. God is God. God does not do surveys and try to find out what we would prefer. In fact, I don't think God is all that interested in what we would do if we were him. But this section does more than just saying God's choice isn't based on this, this, or this. Paul also starts to point out what the basis of God's decision to bless actually is. Did you see that in the text? There's two things are related that Paul points to in verses 10 to 12. What are they? Look at the middle of verse 11. Right after the big dash. This was in order that God's purpose of election could stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul points to God's own purpose and to God's own desire to call as the reasons behind what God does. Now, there is something mysterious about this. Beyond us, we could say. Beyond our grasp. But what we can say is this. God does whatever he does to to accomplish a specific purpose he has. Now, if we ask, well, what purpose is that? What purpose is God trying to accomplish? For that, I would would probably just point back to the last time Paul used the same language, just a little bit before this. If you look back at Romans 8, some very common verses, very familiar verses. Romans 8, verse 28, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What purpose? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his own son. Why? So that Jesus could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God has been doing all things in human history for this purpose, for this aim, this vision. 
And what is that purpose or vision that God has in his mind? God the Father wants to see his son Jesus surrounded by many, many brothers and sisters who love him and look just like him. God the Father loves his son, and he wants his son to be loved and adored and reflected by every one of his brothers and sisters, the very people he died for. This was behind all that God was doing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was that end that God had in mind in all of this. Paul points us to the unswerving, unchanging purpose of God. And to what else? Paul points us to God's own desire to call Jacob as his own. Paul says this was not because of works. It was simply because of him who calls. And again, we have to admit there's something mysterious about this, something beyond our grasp. But what we can say about this when we think about our own lives is that if God has called you into his family, or if God is calling you to faith in Jesus today, know this, it is not because you're so good or because you're worthy of that call or because God somehow owes it to you. Rather, it is because of the purpose and pleasure of God. God has a purpose for all those he calls, and God only calls those he wants to call. And then if we ask, well, why would he want me? Why would he want Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of us? Why? Take a look at the final verse for this morning. Paul gives us an answer to that in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob, I loved. Why did God want Jacob? What is the answer? It's simply because God loved him. So well, why did he love him? Because God did. Because he is love. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I have been around long enough to know that this is one of those verses in Romans 9 that people have a hard time with. Okay? Not because of what it says about Jacob, because we like that, but because of what it says about Esau. And by the way, as you look ahead in the text, it's very obvious that Paul knew people would have a hard time with this. That's why he says what he does in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Next week, Lord willing, we'll work through that next section. But for this morning, we just want to focus on verse 13 itself. What does this verse mean? As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now first, notice that Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage, right? As it is written, that's like an introductory formula thing. You know, to tell you, hey, everybody, I'm going to quote a verse, okay? The story that Paul's been telling about Jacob and Esau is from where? The story itself is from Genesis, the first book of our Old Testaments. But now he offers confirmation from later in the Old Testament about that story. And do you know where the confirmation comes from? Where this quote is from? The last book of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi, maybe it sounds familiar because we read this 
earlier this morning. Malachi chapter 1. And I want you to go back there. Malachi chapter 1, because I want to take a look exactly what is being said in that text. <clears throat> now, just so, just so you know, Jacob and Esau lived, <clears throat> let's say, 1,400 years before Malachi. Okay? By the time you get to Malachi, basically the whole Old Testament story is over. The Jews have already been exiled from, they've gone into the land, they've been exiled from the land. In fact, they're back in the land. Again, by this point. Uh, they had built a temple, the temple had been destroyed, and now there's a new temple. All of this stuff has already happened. And you would hope, you would think, that they would have learned their lesson by this point. But well, you don't get your hopes up very much when you read Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I have loved you. This, by the way, is the last prophetic word from God for like 400 years. And it begins. Nobody knew that. God had been sending prophets for hundreds of years. No one knew this was the last prophetic word. But it was. And God opens it up by saying, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? That's the story of the Old Testament right there. God says, I, I have loved you. And they say, how, how have you loved us? For our purposes, here's the key question. Where does God point them to show them his love? Because he said, how have you loved us? And now God's going to point them to something. Look at the text. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I've hated Esau. I've laid waste Esau's hill country, and I've left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And if Edom, now Edom, that's the people of Esau. Okay? That is really important to, to catch that. Okay, you have, like Jacob, and then who's Jacob's people? Israel. Right? Esau, Esau's people, Edom. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we're going to rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people against whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, obviously, a lot could be said about that right there, but I want to highlight a couple of things. First, there are a few ways that this Jacob and Esau verse can be explained that I don't actually think are all that helpful. Now, obviously, obviously, it is tough to read or to hear God saying he hates someone, right? I mean, there's just no way around this. This is a hard thing to hear. And so then you try to figure out, okay, what exactly does that mean? Because that is also counterbalanced in Scripture by God's love for all people. And so then you're trying to make sense of this. I mean, there's reasons you're trying to make sense of this. Because God clearly has shown his love for all people and what he's done through his son Jesus, and, and he, in fact, in his creation, and his sustaining work, in all these ways. And so then we do have to wrestle with this, and so then people try to explain this, and I think there are some ways that are not particularly helpful to try to explain this. For example, some will say that this verse doesn't have anything to do with individuals, like with Jacob himself or with Esau himself. They'll say this is only about the two nations that came from them, Israel and Edom. And the reason people say this is because it, it makes 
it seem a little easier to digest, perhaps. Now, it is certainly true in Malachi and in Romans that the focus isn't only on Jacob and Esau's individuals. It's also on their descendants. But at the same time, it's still about Jacob and Esau, especially in Romans. You can't read it and say he's not talking about the actual guys. And besides, even if this was only about God's choice of one nation over another, that hardly answers the questions of God's fairness. Like if we're struggling with that. That's not the answer. Others will try to soften the text in a different way by saying that the hatred mentioned here is just a way to say that God loved Esau a little bit less. Or that God loved Jacob so much that it made his love for Esau look like hatred. Or something to this effect. Again, again, even if that is the case, the objections about fairness or justice are hardly solved by that. Because what would you get? Why did he love him more? It doesn't answer the, the problem that, is, that people are trying to answer by this. There are going to be objections to this. Paul knows it. The answer is not to try to make it so nobody would object. Paul knew people would object, and he tries to deal with that in the next text. But, but the other thing is, that hardly fits with this. That God loved Jacob just a little more or something. Because <clears throat> look at what the text says. That God is saying to Jacob and his people, look at Esau and his people. Look at what I've done to them. Look at how I've judged them. I want you to see it. You ask me, how have I loved you? Look at them. At the same time, I do think there's also an error in the other direction in reading this verse, and that is to understand the hatred of God as something like emotional, irrational outburst of anger. God's hatred in the text is not irrational, nor out of control. And it is certainly not sinful. It's not like our sinful outbursts of unbridled, undeserved rage and anger. Just as God's love is his settled choice to protect and care for and rescue Jacob, God's hatred is his settled choice to reject and to judge Esau and his people. But the difference in the actions is that Jacob and his people do not deserve any of what God is doing. But Esau and his people deserve everything they're getting. Now, second thing, what is God trying to do in the text? The answer to that is very clear. God is trying to get his stubborn people to see just how much he's loved them. He says, I've loved you. They say, how? He says, look at this. Okay, that is clear if you actually look at the text of Malachi, that that is the point. Third, to what does God point his people? To show them his love. God points first to how he chose to set his love all those years ago on Jacob. And he points to how he rejected Jacob's brother, Esau. God's love is seen first in that he chose to bless Jacob and call him. But that's not the only thing that shows the depths of God's love. What else does God point them to? He points them to what he did to Esau and his descendants. He says, I've laid waste their country, 
If they say we're shattered, we, we'll rebuild, they will build, but I'll tear it down. They will be called the wicked country, the people that I'm angry with forever. God is pointing his people to this, to show them what? His own love. Why? It's because God's love for us is magnified when we see what he could have done to us but didn't. By pointing them to the destruction God brought on Esau and his house, God is showing his people just how much he loved them. But how does that, how does pointing to the judgment of Esau and his people actually demonstrate God's deep, deep love for Israel? Just pointing to them and saying, look look at what God did to them. That shows how much I love you. There's there's something you have to say to connect that. Because that's not, there's, there's a logical gap there To say, just look at what I did to them. How I judged them. How I've been angry with them. How I've never let them prosper. That shows how much I love you. There's something in between there. And what is it? The only way that shows how much he loved Israel is because they deserved the exact same fate as Esau and Edom. The judgment of the wicked was never meant to get God's people to say, ah, good for them. They deserve what they're getting. Now, the judgment of the wicked is meant to get God's people to say, oh, Lord, I know they deserve. I know they deserve what they're getting. But, oh, Lord, so do I. So do I. Apart from your love and your mercy that I know I do not deserve, that could have would have, that should have been me. Now I know we may still read this verse in Romans or Malachi and feel conflicted with it. Paul knows that. That's what he'll go on in the text. But what we have to grasp today is that there is only one brother who didn't get what he deserved. There's only one. And it's Jacob. And there is only one people that did not get what they deserved. And that's Israel. In other words, people often look at the story of Jacob and Esau and what God did, and they just want to say, that's unfair to Esau. But the truth is, God didn't do anything unfair to Esau or his people. They deserved everything they got. When you read the story of Esau and his followers in the Old Testament, you realize they were rebels. But here's the thing. When you read the story of Jacob and Israel... What do you realize? They're just as bad. In fact, if you read the stories of Jacob and Esau in Genesis, and I ask, which one is better? It's really hard to answer that. Why? Because they're both terrible characters for so long in the story. Esau is a rash, foolish young man who dishonors his parents and trades the future for pleasure. Jacob is at least equally bad in the story. He's a con artist, a total deceiver. Deceives his old dad, you know, who's blind. He is not someone any of us would want to emulate for so often, so much of his life. What's my point? No one in this story deserves to be called by God. Not one person in the stories is worthy of God's love. And the only people who didn't get what they deserved 
for Jacob and Israel. Now this has been another deep dive into the mind and plan of God today. So I'd like to just kind of come up and take a breath, think about what's been said, why it matters. First of all, I just want you to think about what's happened in the text. Okay, On the one hand, Paul's been explaining how God never guaranteed his blessings to every physical offspring you know, of, of, of Abraham, every physical descendant. That's the main thing going on in the text. But on the other hand, God is, or, or Paul has now started to explain why it is that anyone at all gets any of God's blessings. That's what's underneath the whole text. Okay. See, the way Romans 9 to 11 is set up is you come into the text wondering why God hasn't blessed every single ethnic Israelite. That's how you feel when you come into it. Why hasn't God just blessed everybody? But I think what Paul wants us to wonder by the end of the text today is why God has actually blessed any of them. See, perhaps you, perhaps you came today wondering why God doesn't just give every blessing to everybody. In fact, if we're honest, we may even think from time to time that we deserve that. Or that God somehow owes it to us. But I hope we leave wondering why it is that God has blessed anybody. What I'm getting at is that we need to come to grips with the grace of God. At the end of the day, why does God call any of us into his family? Why is there even one person in the world who's been forgiven? Declared right with God. Why did God adopt anybody into his family? The answer is God. It's only because of God. This is the grace of God. It's not because of us, our works, our status, our connections. It's in spite of all of that. It's all because of God the purpose of God, the call of God, and foundationally, the love of God. It's as Jonah said, salvation is from the Lord. Or it's as Paul says, it is the gift of God. If you've gotten the gift, remember it was given to you. It wasn't earned by you. And if you've yet to partake of the gift of eternal life, in Jesus Christ, a gift bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, I simply ask, why not now? Why not receive it by faith? If God is working, if God is calling, don't take that for granted. Why not embrace the gift of eternal life by trusting Jesus now? There's never a better day than today. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words? I, Lord, I, we just, I just want to explain your word. Let your word settle in our hearts. And I pray that it would. I pray that you would teach us, work in our hearts in the, in the ways you want. And Lord, I pray that above all things today, that we will come to a better understanding of grace. That you 
did not owe us anything. What do we have that is not a gift from you? And Lord, for those that maybe are even listening to this today, but have yet to embrace the gift of forgiveness and right standing and eternal life, would you bring them, call them, save them through faith in Jesus? Lord, we thank you for this special day today. In Jesus' name, amen.